Welcome to Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast, the show where we seek to uncover what leadership means in today's world. I'm Joe Hart, CEO of Dale Carnegie, and we will be talking to diverse leaders with stories to tell across various industries to help unlock your potential for success. We will be sharing real life insights into leadership, which in turn can help spark the next level of your growth as a leader. Today's guest is a well-respected figure in the global insurance industry with over 30 years of experience in several key leadership roles. He was regional chief executive for AIA, responsible for leading the business operations in Singapore, Indonesia, Malaysia, Vietnam, India, Thailand, and Sri Lanka. He is the founding CEO of Prudential Vietnam, the regional managing director for Prudential Asia, and in 2005, he was awarded the title of Officer of the Order of the British Empire by Queen Elizabeth II in recognition of his services to the British financial services sector in Vietnam. We are excited to welcome the Group Chief Executive Officer and Executive Director of FWD Group, Quinn Tan Fong. Well, Fong, thank you for being with me today. Welcome to the Dale Carnegie Take Command podcast. Thank you, Joe. It's a pleasure to be here today. Well, it's a pleasure really to be with you. You are a visionary, particularly in the insurance space. I know you're a builder. You've built a number of really phenomenal companies, including FWD, which is, I understand, one of the fastest growing companies in Asia right now, certainly one of the fastest growing insurance companies. And I know there's a lot that we can learn from you, from your experience, your wisdom. Before we talk about that, tell us a little bit about you but where you grew up, were there people or things in your past that really inspired you to be who you are today? In short, I, I was born in Vietnam. I grew up there for the first 12 years of my life during uh, the war period. And then, uh, as you know, when the Vietnam War ended, there's a wave of both people that left the country. So I was one of them and uh, ended up in Hong Kong in the refugee camp, actually, and then uh, resettled in Canada where I grew up and uh, studied and went to school and university and so on and start my working career there. And in 92, uh, my company at that time, Manulife, sent me to uh, Asia for a two-year assignment. And then uh, back to Toronto, you know, the, the usual corporate uh, career. 30 years later, I'm still there <laughs> in, in Asia. So much for planning. <laughs> we plan things and then they go a completely different way, right? Yep. Many forks in the road and uh, depend on which side you take. <laughs> Have you always been flexible when things come up? I mean, how have you approached change or opportunities as you face them? That's a key thing, right? I think you always be prepared. So when opportunities come, you're in a position to uh, take advantage of it and decide what is the right path forward. And there's no such thing as a set plan when it comes to these things anyway, because you cannot predict on possibility. So Fong, when you think about maybe some of the earlier parts of your life, even as you got ready to embark on your career, who were some of the people who inspired you? I think when I was young, I didn't really think about that. But then as I get older and I'm looking back, it's really my mother. I grew up in a very difficult situation uh, during the war time. We came from a relatively well-to-do family, but we lost everything several times during the war and after the communists took over. I didn't think about it much when I was a kid, but uh, when I look back, it's remarkable what uh, my mother went through to put food on the table and to put us through school and to support us. The resilience that she has is just incredible. And uh, actually, I wish I had the chance to 
talk to her more about when she was alive, but she always the one that inspired me the most. It's incredible. Sometimes it is our parents who, when we think about all the different people who we've met and teachers and people we've worked with and so forth, it's often those people closest to us yeah. that made the biggest difference and inspired us the most. You've been a pioneer in the insurance business. You're the first person who actually set the way for the life insurance industry in Vietnam in 1993. Had you always wanted to go into that space? How did you end up in that area? For Vietnam, it's something new. Yes, you're right. And actually, that was one of the things that changed my mind when I spoke earlier to you about how I suppose to be in Asia for two years and coming back to Toronto, you know, pursuit of the corporate career and so on. In '93. As you say, I actually went to Vietnam, accompany a friend of mine on a business development trip. And the country at that time was quite poor. If you think of number, the per capita income for Vietnam at that time was $200 per annum per capita. And the definition for food poverty, not just poverty, food poverty by the United Nations at that time was $1 a day. You know, most Vietnamese was well below the food poverty line. When I arrive and I look at it, the reality really hit. Your career become a chief actuary, a CFO for a corporation versus what can you do to pitch in and make a difference in a country like Vietnam. Uh, and at that time, Vietnam didn't have a life insurance industry. So basically, my commitment at that time is let's try to find a way to help. And my way to help, the best thing I can do to help, the thing that I know how to help is to help people with that insurance industry and create jobs and protect people and invest in the infrastructure of the country and so on. That's how it started. So what did you do then? What did you do from there? So then uh, I started meeting with the government and that's when Vietnam just started open up and most of the senior officials are really, they have this thirsty for knowledge because the country just really literally just opened up and most of the government officials, you know, the, the veteran from the war, uh, they might know how to fight the war very well, but in terms of economy and so on, they always want to talk to younger people like me, even though I came from the wrong side <laughs> of the fence, uh, so to speak. I mean, my dad for the South and, you know, I left the country on the boats and so on. It was a very uh, good conversation about how to develop this particular sector of the economy. So I had a lot of conversation with the various people in the Ministry of Finance and in the government that, that have to do with uh, developing uh, the country on the economic side. That's how it started. I mean, you and I have talked about life insurance. In my mind, life insurance is such an important thing. It's peace of mind. I know a lot of people don't have it. Why was that such an important part of developing the economy at that time? I mean, it was a way that you could contribute. Why was that something that was so important? The life insurance industry, when it boiled down to it, it's just to collect the premium, the, the dollar saving from uh, the general population, and then invest it for the long term and then return that long term uh, saving and investment back to the policyholders in different format. Sometimes it's a death benefit, sometimes it's a disability, sometimes it's health, sometimes it's such an education fund for the kids. We're just a financial uh, intermediary that try to collect on a daily basis a little bit from people and then invest and return the lump sum later. It's one of these industries that create a lot of employment. It's uh, mobilized the saving uh, by the general population and then invest in long-term infrastructure. Given the liability of the insurance product, uh, we tend to look for investment opportunity that lasts 10, 15, 20 years to match our liability. The life insurance industry always been the 
you know, the biggest investor when it comes to long bonds, you know, 15, 20 years. And when I arrived in Vietnam, for example, uh, before the life insurance industry, there's the longest bond would be five years. So you had to sit down and go work with the government and create the yield curve, basically, and issue the first 15 years bond for the country. And then you buy most of it <laughs> yourself uh, to the life insurance company that you own. So there's a lot of factors that really help the economy from a macroeconomic and on the microeconomics in, in that sense. At the same time, it provides the people with a way to save for the future. So it did play a very important part in the economic development and in individual lives and that type of thing. I know that in 1999, you became the CEO, the first CEO of Prudential in Vietnam. And I'm curious, I mean, what were some of the early skills that you possessed that helped you be so successful and to rise to that level at that time? When I talk to young people in the insurance company, the, the usual question is, how do I become a CEO of an insurance company, right? My answer usually, uh, you know, there are two types of people. The first type is the one that uh, really charismatic uh, leader who, you know, get people to jump through fire and, and you know, tend to be the sales guy and uh, people will jump through fire to build operations for them. The other type tend to be an, an actuary who know uh, the technical working of a life insurance company inside out. And you do get the respect because people know that you know, you have the knowledge and the expertise. You can get up there either way. So just be yourself and leverage your strength rather than pretend to be somebody else. I wouldn't be the one that get on stage and make a great speech that people jump through fire for me, but they respect me because they know I know the technical aspect of insurance inside out. It's one of the most important lessons I think anyone can learn really at any stage of their careers, which is you have to be yourself. I mean, sometimes there's such a temptation. We look at other people and we want to emulate those other people, but that's not us. That's not us. Exactly. So that's my exact advice to the young people around me. Just be yourself and leverage your strength, understand your weakness and manage that. The big side benefit of it is you come across as very sincere and genuine. When you try to be somebody else, people will see right through it. You can fool somebody sometimes, but not everybody all the time. So it's, it's, there's no point. So true. I mean, just to be authentic, to be ourselves, people can tell, like yeah. you said. I'm curious also about the role that you know, self-confidence played for you. You're going from an actuarial role, which is a, a technical substantive role, to one which is the CEO is a leadership role. I mean, what was going through your mind to go to that role for Prudential? Were you nervous? Were there challenges that you felt you had to overcome? I got uh, a bit lucky in the sense when I became CEO in Prudential in Vietnam, I used to joke that within the 200 staff that we have, all together, we have about 20 years of insurance experience and 15 of them is mine. <laughs> so, so, so you have to inspire that confidence in the people and they will come to you for answer because this is something very new. The entire country have no expertise on it. They look to you for that guidance. You have to inspire that confidence, that's for sure. I was uh, fortunate, I mean, uh, behind me was a, a bigger corporation with resources and so on and so forth. The thing is uh, to know who to ask. And prior to uh, starting uh, as a CEO there, I spent a number of years working with many people across Asia. And that network of friends and, and, and colleagues that you can count on. I used to share a story that the gentleman now, he's the group CEO now for AIA, the largest insurance company in Asia now. And before that, he was running Ping An, the largest insurance company in China. We both working at Prudential at that time. And it has nothing to do with Vietnam. 
but I need help. And he actually flew down and helped me price all my first generation of product in Vietnam for me, for example, because uh, I need help. He answered that call and uh, get down and help you. So I think uh, by having that relationship over the years and by helping other people when they need you, you can count on the support when you uh, need them in return. So Many people talk about, say, networking. And I know networking's got a negative word, but you actively went and worked to build relationships. In other words, you didn't just work on your job. You said, I need to meet other people. I need to build relationships. Was that an intentional thing that you did? For me, it's not uh, really intentional. When I walk into a conference or meeting, I don't have on, on my checklist that I have to talk to A and B and because I need to network. It's not like that. Again, this boy back down to, again, be yourself. When somebody else needs help, reach out and, and give that hands because you don't count on the people to own you a debt and help you later. But surprisingly in life, it usually come back in a very positive way. And uh, I, I mean, the number of uh, examples that I can share uh, when it comes to something that you did without thinking much about it. And five, 10 years later, uh, the good karma come around. It's it just incredible. I mean, so in life, as in anything, just uh, do good and uh, good things will happen to you. Well, it's very true. I found that a great number of people have helped me in my career and I've helped a great number of people in their career. And I'm just, I'm happy to do it. I'm grateful to be able to help other people. So many people have helped me. I think that's a key. You do it because give you that fulfillment rather than you do it because I need to network with that that particular guy. It feels good to help other people, doesn't it? And like you said with karma, I feel like no matter how much I give (laughs) out, it always seems to come back more, whether you intend it or not. So Fong, not long after you became the CEO of Prudential, you received an order of the British Empire from Queen Elizabeth II. Tell us what that is and how did you get that? The British system, the way that they don't tell you why, and they don't tell you who uh, recommend. I have my usual suspect in mind, but I think the, the, the official reason cited is because my contribution to the uh, bilateral relationship between Britain and uh, Vietnam at that time in building the financial services and to build that bridge. In the late 1990s and early 2000s, the three largest uh, British corporations with a larger operation in Vietnam of Prudential, Unilever, and uh, BP, British Petroleum. So we always play a key role whenever there's a delegation. I mean, when the different prince and princess come into to Vietnam for visiting, or when the prime minister or the president of Vietnam go to the UK, we're always part of uh, those conversations. But on the lighter note, I think if you ask a British person what is a OBE stand for, uh, they will say, other blocks effort. <laughs> Whereas if you get an MBE, which is a, uh, a level lower, it's my bloody effort. <laughs> so I always say I, I really didn't deserve the credit. It's actually another gentleman in my company who did a lot more work in terms of uh, bilateral uh, relationship. So I get the credit and he actually did a lot of work. But thank goodness, the following year, he also received an MBE, which is my bloody effort. <laughs> but that was a great honor to get that recognition from the Queen. So, Yeah, a great honor indeed, and something that's not given out all that much. And certainly, I know you're very humble about your accomplishments. I want to ask you, in 2013, you set out to really create a new kind of insurance company, and really with a blank piece of paper saying... How do we do something that makes people feel completely different about insurance? You've started with 
nothing, a, a concept. You had a vision. And today you've created an organization that is, I believe, in 10 markets in Asia. It's one of the fastest growing companies. Tell us about that experience. What led you to start that company and what leadership advice do you have for other people as they are growing any kind of an organization? All of us, we work for corporations. So, you know, um, we always say, ah, oh, if I have the power, I would do things differently. Uh, I wouldn't do that uh, if I were the boss. You know, we all have those thoughts. So, of course, as an insurance professional, I've been working in this field since 1986. And, of course, there's many things that we say, ah, if I have the chance, I would do it differently. So in 2012, when I met Richard Lee, the major shareholder for FWD at that time, and he said, hey, Fong, would you want to build a new insurance company? I really jumped at it because here you are, the chance to really do what you always think, oh, I can do it like this, I can do it like that. I wouldn't do it if I were if I the boss. You can really put the money where your mouth is and have that chance to really start with a blank sheet of paper. That's the first thing. And then the second thing also, I think, if you look back, there's technology in the early 2000 or in the 1990s. There's many things that we would love to do, but the technology is just not there yet, or it's too expensive, or it's too slow. In 2012, when I had that conversation, and then Richard is also a very big investor in uh, e-commerce and internet space, we both think it's the right time for that strategy to really incorporate you know, the new digital technology to make insurance much better for our customers. So those things kind of come together at the right time. And I always joke them, even if he doesn't pay me, I'll probably take the job anyway, because, <laughs> because how often somebody give you a few billion dollars and say, hey, go and build a new kind of company the way you want it. That doesn't happen often. Of course, you have to do it. Yeah, that was something you had going for you, which is a few billion dollars to work with, I guess, right? <laughs> yes. You've taken that, you've really created something pretty incredible. And I'm just really curious about the leadership lessons. There's a people side, there's a strategy side, there's an execution side. What was the hardest part for you in going from starting that to where you are today? When it comes to insurance, life insurance, especially the technical part of it is quite simple. The concept, the mathematics side of it has not changed for the last couple hundred years. I mean, if you look at the formula, it's the same in terms of uh, on the calculation. The life insurance, when I explained to Richard Lee, for example, I told him, really, we only need three things to build a fantastic insurance group. Number one is uh, we need a lot of capital. <laughs> and you give me that because uh, I don't have that. Number two is we need licenses because most of the uh, jurisdiction you just cannot walk in and create a new life insurance company because it's touching the lives of millions of consumers. So the government is very protective of it. So it's very regulated. So how do we have those licenses? That's the number two. And the third thing is the people. And that's my role to pull together that group of leadership and people around the region. The way I explain to my young staff is we sell life insurance policy. People give us their life saving every month. And we turn around and uh, we give them a promise that costs us, what, 25 cents to print them a piece of paper. And now with the digital, we don't even print a piece of paper. We actually send them an email. So basically, we don't give them anything tangible in return. We only give them a promise. The key of the business is the people that deliver the promise, right? So without those people, you're nothing. It's a people business, really. What are some of the things you look for? You think of all the people you've managed and you've partnered with. What are some of the characteristics you look for? Top couple in, in people that you're looking to bring to work with you. 
the technical expertise and so on and so forth, that's a given, that's hygiene for me, right? You must know your domain knowledge. The key thing when I look for in my leadership team is that shared passion. Let's say when you come to Apple Beauty uh, to, to join my team, it's not about, oh, because I get a bit higher pay or because IPO coming up. It's a, do you truly want to change the way people feel about insurance? Because most of these gentlemen, uh, ladies, they can just walk to another big corporation, a multinational, and easily get a very senior job and get well paid. The differentiation for them is actually they truly want to make a difference in terms of changing the way people feel about insurance. That passion must be there. Otherwise, it doesn't work. You know, within a couple of years, they're going to go to the next highest bidder kind of thing. So we always look for that. The way I build my team and I always give that advanced health warning to everybody is I tend to hire people who are very different than me and different from each other. If you look at my team, you don't see a lot of little Fong. No, <laughs> one Fong is bad enough. I always try to find people who complement me or bring a skill set that I don't have. So the end result of that is a fun team to work with, but it's, it can be quite difficult because they are very different from personality, different opinion, and that's the sort of team that I normally end up with. Well, it sounds like, you know, the passion part is something that you really can look for. You bring a diverse set of people and skill sets together. How about accountability and execution? Because ultimately, you're a visionary. You sat down and you said, this is what we're going to build. And I know you're hyper customer focused. You're leveraging technology. You're trying to understand what the customer wants before the customer might even know. You've really excelled in that area, which is one of the reasons why the company has grown so much. And that depends upon execution and accountability and so forth. So how do you, as a leader, how do you ensure that you have that? And how do you handle things when you don't? I know I don't have probably one of the worst when it comes to translate strategy into day-to-day execution and make sure all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. First group of people I bring to the team, always the one that can supplement me with that. Otherwise, um, it won't work. So when I build Prudential in Vietnam, for example, my number two, one lady who, you know, tremendous sales leader who can get people to jump through the fire, who really into the details, I will point to which hill to conquer, and then that hill will be conquered the next day. (laughs) So the execution part, for example, IT and digital, if an FWD transaction takes more than 30 seconds on the web, for example, for me, because I'm a slow typist and I'm an impatient guy, then it doesn't work. But I need to hire the people who know how to make it work. You always consciously make sure your team, the right people for that. I have no ego. I'll be the very first one to say that I'm very stupid in that aspect. That's why you're here. <laughs> well, you're very humble. I've interviewed so many great leaders on this podcast. And that's one thing that I've seen in so many of them. They'll say, look, you know, I don't have all the answers. I need to find people who know more than I do. I feel that way. And you know, when I think about the difference between hiring the right person who can just go get something done versus the one who can't or versus where, you know, if I thought I had to know more, I guess we're in trouble. <laughs> but it sounds like that's a really, that's an important strategy. To me, that's uh, how you become much more successful than you ever could by yourself. So many times people will look at CEOs and they will see success 
they don't necessarily see some of the challenges that CEOs go through. They don't know that CEOs might deal with stress or worry or obstacles to overcome. What are some of the things that as a CEO, people might not know that you've had to overcome and how have you overcome those things? On one side, you feel great when you create a lot of jobs and you see family prosper around you and so on and so forth. But the flip side of it is during a difficult time, it's not just about you, it's about the families of the people around you that impact. That's always very tough. I think most people don't see that, that part of the job. I still remember in, in 99 when the license for Putin from Vietnam was delayed by six months at that time, but we didn't know six months. We thought it was indefinite. There I had a hundred and something people on the payroll and you had to basically sit down with everybody and say, okay, how do we cut half of the people? That sort of decision never fun, but it's necessary and uh, the team pulled together to it and so on. But the issue like that is never an easy one. And also some of the, you know, when you come to some fork on the road and you have to choose uh, the way to go, if you make a dumb decision, it's, it's not just about you. It's about a lot of people around you. So it's, it's, uh... it is, it's hard. And most CEOs who I know care so deeply about their people and some of the hardest things, you know, carry on your shoulders, the weight of just wanting people to be, to be okay. And it must've been a very difficult time. And at the same time, the first responsibility of the leaders to make sure that the organization succeeds and survives, because if it doesn't survive, it's not going to be good to anybody. Yeah. I'm curious, Fong, if you look back on your career and you were to talk to yourself early in your career, what is some advice you'd give to a younger self? The lesson I learned from my own experience, I think there will always be opportunities, but only those who are prepared and hard work and ready for it can take advantage of it. So I think that's, that's the number one. Second one is you have to keep on that flexibility and that open-minded. When I look back, I mean, one of the best accidents I had is when I signed up for the two years assignment in Asia. And that also then opened up a new possibility when I come out of that part of the world. And then when I jumped to, from a financial career into a general management, which comes with a lot of risk. I could have just followed a normal career and actually and uh, go back to Toronto and try to become the group CFO and so on and so forth. It's a much safer path. But when the general management opportunity comes up, you have that flexibility. So keep that flexibility. At the end of the day, it's really boiled down to it. It just follow your passion. And that when it's really determined a very strong passion, like you got to do something to help as many people as possible giving back to society through that, because that's the best way you can help. You've helped. I mean, you employ so many people through your company. The economic engine that you've created has been very, very significant. And you're clearly someone who's motivated by a passion to help other people, both through the business, you know, what the business sells, and also what the business does. What fuels you today? If you look at the years ahead, what are you most excited about for the future? I think the, if you look around Asia, again, in the West, about the social safety net, about what the government can do for you, family can do for you, your saving and the various financial institutions around you. In Asia, it's far from that, far, far from that. And what us insurance and multinational and uh, Asian insurance company can do, it's just a drop in the bucket. Even in a place like Singapore, where it's a developed economy, people are wealthy and so on and so forth. The average income is actually higher than the US. The average claim check 
that I pay for a death in Singapore is only one third of an annual income. So an average person only have four month coverage. And that is actually really good for Asia. If you look at the Philippines, the average person have about one month income protection. One month. <laughs> Imagine what happened to your family if something happened to you. So I think my point here is, it's just a drop in a bucket what we have done so far. How do we create some sort of system that can get hundreds of millions into that social safety net? That's something that if you ask me, if, if what excites me or what keeps me going, that's probably the thing around Asia. How do I get more people into that social safety net? It is a safety net. I know you and I were speaking before we started just about, you know, when I was early in my career and I had a young family, one of the first things I said is I've got a life insurance. If God forbid something happens to me, what's going to happen to them? It was an easy decision. It was peace of mind. People don't always look at it that way, but if something happens, you're happy you have it. So any closing pieces of advice for our listeners? Number one, have that passion to make sure in the morning, if you wake up and you don't feel so excited about getting out of bed and go to work, you're in the wrong job. <laughs> go do something else because you're wasting your time and you're wasting the company's time if you're not excited about it. And then, you know, very patient and persevere at what you do because sometimes life throws a lot of things at you if you're very clear about where you want to go and keep at it. That's important. Last but not least is prepare to... For that perspiration, work hard. <laughs> the harder you work, the luckier you get. Don't need to focus on financial reward and so on and so forth because those things will come as a side benefit of that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I got to tell you, especially appreciate the point you make about passion. That's really, I think, for anyone who's listening to this, there's a joy we can have in work when we're passionate about what we do. And there's a misery we can have when we're not passionate about what we do. So find something that we're passionate about. Fong, thank you so much for being with me today. It's been a great pleasure to get to know you and to speak with you. Yeah, thank you, Joe. It's a pleasure. In our Thought Leadership Spotlight segment today, Our guest will share how we can make a difference by applying one of the Dale Carnegie principles and working together. Like Mr. Fong, our guest reminds us to leverage our strengths, think of others, and make a difference. Please welcome Master Trainer, Chairwoman, and CEO of Dale Carnegie Training Vietnam, Lin Nguyen. In July and August 2021, COVID-19 pandemic reached its peak in Vietnam. With the infections of 10 to 15,000 cases and causing 400 deaths per day. Education industry, together with tourism, hospitality, were among the industries that were mostly negatively impacted by the COVID. And like everyone else, Dale Carnegie Vietnam was fighting very hard for our survival that time every day. But luckily, we were fighting in hope, enthusiasm, conviction, and as one team. I myself felt a lot for the sharing of Mr. Fong that in obstacles and challenges, we should be ourselves, leverage our strengths, and most importantly, think of others and make a difference. And we did that. We follow the core principle number four that we have in the entire network of Dale Carnegie for 110 years of history, which is be sincerely interested in others and care about them with our whole heart. And while most of the companies in the industry chose to lay off the majority of staff, 
reduce office areas, minimize most operating budgets, or even suspend the operations or go bankruptcy. The management of Dale Carnegie Vietnam chose to keep everything as normal as possible with our own costs. Two full offices in Ho Chi Minh and Hanoi and all staff members are kept with uncut salary. And even though we got just half a year revenue in a total period of two years, we did achieve to bring peace, engagement and joy to the team. We were trying our best to think of others and their interests. We were ourselves living with kindness and wholeheartedness and treasure every member we had in our company. And that was the biggest achievement we ever fought for and also what be the living philosophy that we'll proudly follow in our business onwards. And we learn, we believe that together we can make a difference. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast. Check out our resources page at www.dalecarnegie.com for more research, insight, and tools that will support your success in taking command of your leadership potential. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating it and subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us for the next episode of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast.